Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, what's real about this market is that many investors have really neglected to get in on the advance in share prices. But here to tell us perhaps why is Ben Hunt. He is the chief investment strategist for Salient, and they're based in Houston, but he joins us here in our studio. Thanks very much for being here, Ben. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Maybe you can uh, sort of unpack uh, my very short sure. description of what is going on. This is a, a rally in stocks. Uh, uh, Dow is at a record today. S&P too? Yeah. Uh, no one likes this rally somehow. <laughs> what, why, why is that? There is no feeling of exuberance, is there? No, there's no feeling of exuberance. And I'll, I'll tell you why. It, it would be as if you had a, a housing market that was just uh, going gangbusters, and an, an all-time high in housing prices and housing activity, and yet real estate agents were having a miserable time. But that's the situation we have now because we have the, the, the markets at all-time highs, and yet, and yet anyone who's been in this business for really more than a nanosecond doesn't trust it. They don't like it. Why not? Because it doesn't depend on fundamental factors. Right? The, the, the plain truth of the matter is that fundamentals – Right, what what I'll call stock picking, uh, buying good stuff and avoiding the bad stuff that hasn't worked for eight years. It hasn't worked since March of two thousand and nine, when the when the Fed's. When you say it hasn't stuff. worked, in what way has it not worked? I mean, because you think about companies like no. Facebook, uh, like uh, you know, pick a Microsoft for example. I mean, it, it, there are companies that have returned, but uh, no, no. My point is that everything is up. Right. So the, the, the S&P has tripled over the last eight years. But if you look at, you know, you can... The you bad can, with the good is the what The bad just, with the, the good, right? Because this, this massive amount of buying that's been going on right, right now... Central, of exchange-traded funds that are typically well, packed with not just one stock, obviously. Well, well, well that's true. Let me, let me, let yeah. me come back on the, the whole ETF question, because they're, 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 I think there are two main factors here that make this such a, an, an unloved market. And it's an unloved market... By stock pickers, because again, stock picking hasn't worked. Trying to pick the good from the bad on what we've all been trained to believe should be the deciding factors between the good and the bad, that hasn't worked, right? It, it used to work, it really did, right? So you look at all these factors like quality and value and the like, it, it was able to, you, you were able to, to, to pick one set of stocks, avoid another set of stocks. That doesn't work when everything goes up together. And that's been that rising tide that lifts all boats that's come from this massive wall of money that central banks have plunged into markets. About $14 trillion. That's how much the, the, the central bank uh, balance sheets are today. And they're adding about $2 trillion a year. So it's, just a, it's a massive amount of money. Now, but here's the thing. Something changed last Wednesday with the Fed announcement. What, what we're really seeing is that the Fed is changing, and I'll use a $10 word, their reaction function. It, and, and basically what that means is the Fed going forward, I don't think they're going to be your best friend like they have been for the past eight years. What leads you to believe that? Just because they might raise rates, what, two, maybe three times? Well, it's, 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 a, it's a whole different uh, uh, way of looking at the world. And that's what I mean by this, this, this 
economist phrase, right? Reaction function. What, what, what does that mean? It means that what sort of data is the Fed looking at? What do they say that they're looking at? And how do they react to that new data? So what we've had so far this year is actually pretty not so good data from what they typically look at. Things like inflation, uh, things like uh, industrial production, all of those have been pretty pretty not so good, right? Employment's good though, right? The employment this is the picture. thing, and this is, this is the shift, right? So the, the shift is now really focused on the unemployment rate. The shift is really focused on the potential for wage inflation. And so this is why the Fed gave a very hawkish talk uh, not just in what they announce, but then in the press conference afterwards. So what what I'm saying is that this 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 pattern that we've been so well trained to uh, respond to over the last eight years of the Fed and the other central banks doing more, 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 that pattern shifts has shifted, and it's it's look this this is what always. So how happens. should investors? So how and I want to give you the yeah. time to do this. It, it explain how investors should shift their thinking in order to accommodate this situation. Well, two two respects. The first is that the Fed is not going to have your back anymore in the way that it has. So what we've we've been really well trained over the last eight years. Whenever there's some sort of scary moment, right? The 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 the, the response has always been, oh, well, the Fed will do more. They'll buy more. They will lower interest rates. If it's not here, maybe it's the ECB. So you say that's gone. I'm saying that's changed. Okay. We've, we've reached what's the, the, what's the second thing? Give you 30 seconds there. So the second thing is this. When everything was going up together, stock picking, active management didn't matter, right? And so that's why you saw all this money go away from, I'll call it actively managed mutual funds into ETFs and the like, because it really didn't matter. When this rolls over, with the, with the Fed not being your best friend, it matters again. And it's just at the moment of maximum capitulation, both by practitioners and investors here in this market. I want to thank you very much uh, for your insight. Very interesting. Uh, ben Hunt is the uh, chief investment strategist for Salient. They are based in uh, Houston, uh, Texas. And you can follow uh, Ben on Twitter at Epsilon Theory. And you'll be able to find out exactly all the details about how that theory is put together and how it applies uh, to professional investing. Well done. Thanks very much, Ben Hunt. want to bring in Stephen Gandel. He is a columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly covering equity markets. He can be followed on Twitter at Stephen Gandel, G-A-N-D-E-L. All right. So tell us, uh, Mr. Gadfly, what about this uh, deal that Amazon taking over uh, Whole Foods, what effect do you believe that that has on the grocery store uh, industry? But I want you to see if you can connect that with this initial public offering that we've been speaking about, Blue Apron, which is the uh, prepared recipe-based delivery cook-at-home food business. Right. So clearly the market thinks it's going to have a lot of effect on uh, the grocery business. All of the stocks fell. Uh, it, if you look at it, and, and, and so some people – 
use that to bridge to say that maybe the government's going to look at this as antitrust if, if investors are so worried about Kroger's and say uh, Super Value and some of the other ones. Uh, but I don't think that's really the case. It's very, it's relatively small. The the in terms of sixteen billion, I think, in terms of sales is uh, uh, for uh, yeah Whole Foods uh, for Whole Foods right and, right out of eight hundred billion in the grocery business and out and, of two hundred billion. For Amazon, out of two hundred billion for Amazon, but Amazon has about eight billion in the um, in the grocery business. So it's still small. It's a bigger portion of the online grocery online business. But because that's because you you have to if you broadly define what Amazon because Amazon sells everything online. If you say everything that could show up in a grocery store, call that Amazon's online grocery business. That's a lot of stuff that maybe isn't they've never really thought of. It's not Amazon Fresh. They've really never thought of that as kind of grocery delivery. So. But clearly, the the market is concerned about that. I'm not sure how concerned they should be about. It. When you to, say concerned, in what in what way? Well, How's the stocks all fell. Itself? The stocks all fell. Kroger's. I mean, of the competing grocery stores. Yeah, the competing grocery stores. Right. A little bit up today, but okay. Yeah, a little rebound on, let's say, Kroger, for example. Right. Exactly. So for for. Blue Apron, this comes at a very bad time, right? Because they're trying to price their IPO. You could imagine that Whole Foods would do a service of whole meals where prime customers would get free delivery. And that is, uh, and, and also Whole Foods is seen as a, prime, a premium fresh food brand. So you can see there's a big uh, a negative for, for Blue Apron. You know, I keep thinking of one word, and I don't know whether it should be one word, but it's called Peapod. Hmm. Do you remember Peapod? Yeah. Peapod was no, it's a still victim. there, right? Well, originally it was a victim of the dot-com bust. There was an operation that was designed to deliver food to your home in just this manner. And well, uh, I think Peapod's still around. There was something called Webvan. Well, they have a new a new version of it. Anyway, okay. the, the point being that what has changed in the food preparation and delivery business that makes this a good business now, whereas, let's say, 17 years ago, it wasn't such a good business? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, Amazon was – first of all, Whole Foods did not think this was a good business. They weren't in it. They partnered with Instacart. So they, they, they said, you know, we'll let someone else kind of do this part of the business. Instacart is a delivery Another business. delivery service competitor to uh, Amazon Fresh or uh, what people think Amazon's going to do with Whole Foods. So Whole Foods said they didn't really want to be in this business. And and Amazon had trouble getting into it. I mean, they, they, they have kind of dabbled in it for a few years and then kind of decided – I guess with this, they couldn't do it on their own. Uh, Blue Apron has made the case that this is a really good business, but they haven't really shown that it can be. I mean, the idea with e-commerce is that it can bend the cost structure, right? You, you don't have to have stores. You have to have distribution, but you don't have to have short stores. You can be a lot more profitable. But that doesn't really the case in, in groceries because the inventory you have goes bad. right? The main problem with a grocery store is that your food's always spoiling. And, and Amazon or Blue Apron, sorry, hasn't been able to show that they can hold lower inventory than their traditional grocery stores. It's going stores. the other way, as a matter of fact, isn't right, it? Right, their inventory is going up, has been going up. It hasn't been as a percentage and of sales. spoilage of food has been and going up. And spoilage costs have been going up. So it's not clear that uh, when it comes to grocery business, the e-commerce is really a better business model. So having said that, uh, what makes Amazon.com think, do you believe, that this is a growth business or is it just to take more market share and then you know you'll read a recipe in the Washington Post which is owned by Jeff Bezos and you'll be able to order it through some app that will automatically connect you with content I mean all these marketing options right I mean one thing you could say is just 
this is a bigger test. You know, it's, it's not much money for Amazon, as you said. The, the, in terms of the market cap, it's, it's not very big. So they're just they're doing another test. They tried with on their own for a test. This is a bigger one. So that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it, I would think, is the play is that Amazon just wants to be more and more part of your life, right? You wake up. I wake up every morning and say, uh, Alexa, good morning, right? And so if I'm getting my groceries from Amazon too, even if it's not producing a lot of profits for them, you could see how uh, they want to continue to integrate Amazon into your daily life. And if you get your food from Amazon, that's a big part of it. Do you think that there's a greater risk of a food delivery company versus a restaurant company? And I'm thinking about the food scare that took place with Chipotle Mm -hmm. over the last couple of years and how that really knocked their stock and caused a whole bunch of problems for the company that they are still struggling with. I I think whenever you're trying to do fresh on a mass scale, uh, and again, uh, Blue Apron, if you look at them, they've had inventory issues, problems trying to get the food fast enough to um, consumers before it spoils. I think you're 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 going to run into this problem the same way Chipotle ran into the problem. So yeah, I think it's an issue, and I think if you it, again, it, the Amazon deal for Whole Foods comes at a bad time for Blue Apron because uh, Blue Apron is supposed to have a higher profit margins, so their their multiple is supposed to be. A premium, but they have about the same profit margins as Whole Foods, and Amazon's only paying is paying like a little bit less than one time sales. Blue Apron today announcing their IPO, they want to go in at about four times sales. Right, that they really have to, uh, it, and some of that's because of Blue Apron's cost structure. Uh, sorry, growth, but they really have to bend that cost structure and show they can, which they haven't, to say that we're worth four times, whereas. Uh, Whole Foods only with less than one. But with, wait, I'm just wondering if you, there's a devil's advocate position to take, which is that this is actually a good thing for Blue Apron because it confirms that there is big money behind the food delivery business. And Whole Foods, of course, comes with its store footprint, which something that Blue Apron doesn't have is either a plus or a minus. Uh, I agree. There is some validation to it, but there's validation at a quarter of the price. And with that validation comes a very big competitor after you. Yeah. And uh, just wondering, have you tried any of these uh, home delivery? Uh, Fresh Direct. And? In New York. Right. Uh, I sort of like it in a lot of boxes. Okay. Like, so, so you lose the time of shopping uh, at the store, but you um, or, or you don't have that time, but you do have the time of cutting up boxes and uh, uh, at least in New York City, uh, uh, tying them together so you can get the the guardsmen and take them away. Well, uh, well done. Thank you, uh, and, and good for you for being so uh, environmentally conscious. Thanks very much, uh, Stephen Gandell. He is a columnist covering equity markets for Bloomberg Gadfly. Go ahead and follow him on Twitter at Stephen Gandell. G A N D E L. I want to bring in Alex Barinka, our uh, initial public offerings reporter, to sort of add into this because you're not necessarily going to take a company that is losing money. I think it's doing about $780 million in revenue. Uh, this is a food delivery home preparation company called Blue Apron. It's going public. Alex, a pleasure. Tell us what you know about this uh, IPO. I think it's going to, they said what, $587 million? Including the the overlapment to underwriters, right? So right now they're marketing... Including 30, they, uh, yeah. Slower, slower. They're, they're, they're marketing... Sorry, you know me. I'm in the weeds and I feel it. I, I get excited, Pim. Um, they're marketing 30 million shares um, for $15 to $17 each. That's according to the filing that they, they updated us when they filed this morning. Basically, 
basically announcing to the world that they're going on the roadshow for this IPO. Interesting timing, though, and not necessarily Blue Apron's fault. So they um, they operate in the uh, food delivery industry. As you said, they send boxes. Amazon. With, exactly. Amazon, you know where I'm getting. Amazon. Amazon, Amazon, It's going to be Amazon. the answer to almost everything. Exactly. So they send food. And you remember last week, Amazon agreed to buy Whole Foods for yes. about $14 billion. So that kind of big looming specter over this whole grocery industry is out of the control of Blue Apron. They've got to get the this deal done. But, you know, that happened just last week. Now they're going to have to go out in front of investors for the next two weeks and answer questions about the industry, about where their uh, competitive edge is. And you got to think a lot of those questions are going to include that word, Amazon. I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about the people or about some of the details of the company, because I was reading the S1 and these are very accomplished uh, executives who are running it, uh, albeit uh, many of them in their 30s and, and 40s. Tell it, us about it. It is a young company. It's a New York-based company. Um, it, it was founded by Matt Salzberg. He used to work at Bessemer Venture Partners, the venture Which is an investor. Firm. Exactly. And it's one of the early investors in Blue Apron as well. Um, he's been around the block for a while um, in the tech kind of startup space. Uh, he also worked for Blackstone. The CFO came from Under Armour, um, where he was uh, a, the VP of accounting Yeah, and Bradley finance. Dickerson. Exactly. Bradley Dickerson. So they, there is some big name experience here. Again, the constant question is going to be, uh, for a lot of these companies, this one will only be valued at uh, $3.2 billion if it sells its shares at the high end of that range uh, compared to you know the giants out there. The question will continue to be in this space. It's an $800 billion dollar grocery market. How? What's the market? What's your target audience for getting these home kits delivered to you? Is that enough? Is there growth there? Is that enough? Well, I was looking, well in the S1, it? and Dave, you can even come in on this, you know, looking at the charts that they show that are going to be part of the roadshow, it has, you know, a nice big bar chart that shows that the biggest demographic is the youngest age group cohort, and that I think something like 64% or 65% of their total customer base is made up of these young people, and Maybe they just don't know how to cook. And that's, you know, that's the bull case and that's what they're pitching. And that will be so important for these deals, for these companies that are losing a lot of money. Investors want to know where is the growth? Why do I trust my money with you at this young age? Where is the growth going to be? They say, Blue Apron says they only address less than 1% of the total addressable market for customers in the U.S. So you can see there that there is room for improvement. But the bear case, I still got to say, those millennials, I'm of the category. We're still buying on Amazon. A- well, I was going to ask you, have you had a Blue Apron? I have. I, I've tried, tried to be a good it, reporter. But... I've tried Blue Apron. I've tried Sunbasket, which is another company that, according to our sources, has uh, hired underwriters for a potential IPO moving to go public. So you can see there are some copycats here. So competition is going to be the key word. I keep thinking copycats. Uber, Lyft, gee. It's an interesting <laughs> tech economy. Thank you very much. Alex Barinka, our initial public offerings reporter, and you'll be following Blue Apron for us and Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks columnist. Thank you very much. Let's uh, turn our attention now to banks and a potential payout of $30 billion. Here to tell us more is our senior writer for banking and finance, Yaman Onoran, for Bloomberg News. Yaman, always a pleasure to see you. Uh, $30 billion, that's, um, that's real money, isn't it? Yes, it is. And um, where does it come from, and where could it go? <laughs> I mean, it's not new money. It's not more money that that the banks are going to make as profits. But 
it's the money uh, that they'll be able to pro, uh, uh, distribute to their shareholders in addition to what, what they did last year. So this is just an increase in dividends and buybacks. And that's crucial for shareholders of banks because um, you know many years after the crisis, they really were so stingy. The banks were stingy. They had to be stingy. The regulators didn't really let them distribute any of the money. They kept holding on to them and improving their capital levels. Now, finally, those payouts are slowly inching up. Well, tell us about Steven Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, and his role in this topic. Um, you know, the, this sort of the easing of the stress test where, where this, you know, this is why some, some of the banks are increasing their payouts, it sort of predates Trump and Mnuchin. Things, things started happening even last year because partly because banks have managed to increase their capital levels over the years. Uh, so it's not as bad as it used to be. Uh, and regulators have, have sort of eased up on them. But Mnuchin, under Trump's uh, executive order, is reviewing all the, all the bank regulations. And, and in his recommendations that came out last week, he suggested that they should get even you know, get, uh, easier on the banks dur- during the stress tests and, and make them every two years, you know, drop the qualitative uh, portion of it, which is very tough. So, so going forward under regulators uh, appro- uh, appointed by Trump, things are probably going to get even better for the banks. Now, the regulators that actually administer these stress tests, they come from the Federal Reserve. Yes, this is a Federal Reserve uh, institution it has become. Uh, they started it in 2009. Um, I mean, it was very much hand-in-hand hand, um, with the government at the time who wanted to, to restore confidence in the U.S. banking system. Um, but then it became a big, big Federal Reserve uh, institution and um, Dan Tarullo, uh, who was in charge of regulation at the Federal Reserve, uh, was a big proponent of this and, and led this effort for years. So he's out. Um, there will be new people uh, appointed by Trump to the Fed. Um, so if those people are, are more uh, industry friendly, you know, this could get even easier. When you say get even easier, you mean to actually change the terms of the stress test, for example, have it done every other year? For example, that is one way. And um, other ways are, um, you know, banks have complained a lot about how untransparent some portions of this is. In other words, the, the, you know, everybody does their own stress test. They say, okay, if there was a big crisis, financial and economic meltdown, how would we fare? And then the Fed takes those and then runs its own calculations using its own secret models. No, they don't tell anyone. And, and the banks keep saying, we never know what you're really looking at. And so more transparency, for example, that the Fed starts giving about these things, the banks would like that. Well, one thing that we know that is transparent is that if you have $250 billion in assets or less, you can be exempt from this. From parts of it. Yes. I mean, the qualitative like section that, like, that yes. I mentioned, the qualitative section uh, is, is where not only the numbers, but they looked at every risk management tool that the banks had and really cracked down on them on, on small little things that they found lacking, uh, which, again, the banks hated. Uh, Deutsche Bank's uh, Trust Bank, which is a very small subsidiary in the U.S., kept failing that portion for a few years. Um, they're not going to be in it this year. But Deutsche Bank and other big European banks are going to be um, consolidated. I mean, they have consolidated all their U.S. operations under one roof, according to other Fed rules. And so those big consolidated entities in the U.S. will actually come under the stress test next year. So it will be tough for them again. So they'll be under the spotlight once more. Um, and 
and they might there we might see failures there next year um, but still as we go forward you know these things are not going to be as harsh there'll be more transparency and the banks will probably know better how to deal with them or game them well thanks very much I know you're going to be watching both of those potential scenarios Yaman Onoran senior writer banking and finance for Bloomberg News speaking about less stressful tests how 30 billion dollars could be unlocked for bank shareholders thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts SoundCloud or whatever podcast platform you prefer I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.